By the time of his death in the late 1800s, Charles Spurgeon was affectionately known around the world as the Prince of Preachers. It's said that he's preached over 3,600 sermons to more than 10 million listeners. Think about it like this. If I were to preach every Sunday in a year, that would be 52 sermons. If I were to preach every Sunday for 65 years, that would put me at roughly 3,380 sermons. I started preaching when I was 25. 25 plus 65 would put me at 90 years of age to almost preach the same amount of sermons as Spurgeon did. Oh, and I forgot to mention, Charles Spurgeon started preaching when he was 17 and died at the young age of 57. This is truly a remarkable event that took place. Especially when you consider his upbringing. You would think that a prodigy like this, who would preach to millions of people more than 3,600 times, would have had the necessary upbringing for this to take place. He would have had the best education, the money to send him to whatever school he'd like, But in fact, that was not the case at all. Spurgeon, in fact, grew up in a small country town in the United Kingdom. At one point, his parents had to ship him off to live with his grandparents because his parents didn't have the necessary resources to care for him at the time. Both his father and his grandpa were in the ministry. In small country towns in the UK in the 1800s, which meant that financially they weren't the most well-off or richest people. So what was this upbringing like? Well, when Spurgeon was young, he would go to his grandpa's library. That is, if the fire in his library was going because it was during the, the window taxing time in the UK, which if you had a window in your house, you were taxed according to how many windows you had. So literally, you had to pay for the sunlight in your homes. And he would read. He would read all that he could in his grandpa's library. He would end up going to primary school. He would try going to college, but there ended up being a miscommunication between the secretary and him, and he ended up in another room where the principal was and thought the principal was standing up and so Spurgeon never ended up going to college. He ended up becoming the pastor of a small church in a country town at the age of 17. Then he would be invited to London to preach at what was called the New Park Street Church. This particular church held about a thousand people, but had dwindled to only 150 people showing up each Sunday. His wife would go on 
to talk about him the first time that she heard him preach and say that she had a hard time understanding him or paying attention because of his silly country voice that he had and the blue polka-dotted handkerchief that he would wave around. However, something happened that morning. The 150 people that were there left to tell people in amazement about this young 19-year-old preacher from the country who sounded silly with this blue handkerchief, and for the night service, the service nearly doubled. People left in amazement that this young country, uneducated preacher was able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with such clarity and power. Truly the most unlikely person. Well, as we come to our passage today, we're seeing something a bit similar here. That is how God uses unlikely, the unlikely people, the unlikely places to accomplish his tasks. When Herod wanted to destroy Jesus, Joseph had to flee. Herod wanted to destroy, he wanted to kill a newborn child. When that happened, Joseph fled. He fled to Egypt. Now we see Joseph is in Egypt still, and out of Joseph's obedience, he comes back because the angel of the Lord comes and tells him it is okay to return. Herod is dead. Joseph, take you, the child, and his mother home. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus, King Herod's son was reigning over, Joseph became afraid and he was warned in a dream not to return to that area and so he settles in a place in Galilee, specifically Nazareth. But we find out that there was a grand plan over all that is taking place here in this passage. You see, this took place to fulfill what the prophets had spoken. That is, Jesus was to have this funny nickname. He was to be called a Nazarene. So this is what we're going to see this morning, is that Matthew is showing us this morning how the prophecy of Jesus being called a Nazarene is fulfilled. And he does this in three ways. Obedience, place, and plan. Matthew is showing us how the prophecy of Jesus being called a Nazarene is being fulfilled by obedience, by a place, and by a plan. Let's take a look at the obedience we see in this passage. The prophecy of Jesus being called a Nazarene is being fulfilled through the obedience of Joseph. We actually see this happen twice in this passage. We see it at the beginning and more towards the end. We come here. The, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, or sorry, wrong place, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But that's not it. 
The second way that we see Joseph's obedience, and when he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel, but when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Now, we don't know for sure how long Joseph stayed in Egypt, but here's one of the first ways that we see Joseph's obedience, is that he had stayed and remained in Egypt. If Joseph took the animal personality test that we give out, Joseph would be a strong golden retriever, loyal and obedient. Should we be surprised by Joseph's obedience that we see here, though? Well, I don't think we, we should be. We've already been told by Matthew, and we've been shown how Joseph was a just man. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. We, we also know that when Joseph was told to flee to Egypt, he wasted no time at all and blew Dodge in the middle of the night. He picked up everything in the middle of the night and left for Egypt. The other ways we are able to see his obedience is that when they were planning on returning to Judea, they didn't. So we see that Joseph flees to Egypt. We see that Joseph is told to come back and he comes back from Egypt. And we see that when he was planning on returning to Judea, he didn't. Well, why? Well, a couple of reasons. Archelaus was the ruler of that district. Archelaus was Herod's son. And believe it or not, as terrible as Herod was, Archelaus was worse. In fact, Archelaus was exiled for trying to start a revolt. And so Herod, being scared for a good reason, is warned and does not go to this district, but instead goes to the district of Galilee. Let's just call it what it is. What we see Joseph here is a man of obedience. And not just is Joseph a man of obedience, but we see that Joseph is a man of quick obedience. Now, it's no surprise here for us that Joseph's life was messy. Joseph's life was unpredictable at this point. There's a season for everything. And right now, the season of life that Joseph happens to find himself in is a crazy, messy life that has been turned upside down in the matter of a few years. He and his family are new are refugees in a new land, not knowing when they can come home. A psychotic ruler wants his child, the child of the mother, dead. And yet, in the midst of this craziness, in the midst of this mess, in the midst of this unpredictable life that Joseph finds himself in, he's a man of obedience. I wonder if in life's unpredictable craziness, when the storm comes, if you are one to be obedient to what the Lord has called you to. 
Maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, but Max, Joseph had dreams to tell him what to do. If God just spoke to me in dreams, of course I'd be quick to obey. Duh! So then maybe we should ask the question, well, how has God chosen to speak to us today? Is it still through dreams? Well, I would say no, God does not speak to us primarily through dreams anymore. And how can we be sure of this? Well, if we first look at the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, we only see one other time that God communicates through dreams. That is the night before Pilate washes his hands of Jesus. His wife comes to him and says, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Well, well but, but, but what about the visions that the apostles experienced? I, I think what we see specifically is the apostles having visions to help them establish the church and advance the gospel. So how do we answer this question of obedience for us then? How has God chosen to speak to us today? Well, Paul writes to Timothy telling him, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God has chosen to speak to us through His Word. through what we call the Bible. Everything. Everything we need in order to obey God when life gets turned upside down and gets absolutely crazy can be found in His Word. When your life is getting stressful and that anxiety is bubbling to the surface, we are told to pray. God's Word tells us to cast those worries upon Him because He cares for us. When you're being tempted to sin with that pestering sin that you thought you cut off months, years ago, the the Word of God tells us that by the Spirit we are able to put to death the deeds of the flesh, that the Lord will provide a way of an escape when that person, <laughs> you know, that person who's always causing you problems comes around. The Word of God tells us to love them. Everything we need to obey God comes from His Word. But I wonder if you aren't a Christian and you're here with us today. If so, thank you for joining us. But I'd just like to ask this question to you. What is it that you're obeying right now? Maybe you haven't realized this yet. 
But in life, we all present ourselves as obedient to some sort of master. Some find their master in a 12-pack. Others find their master in passion and the next available person or image. Yet others find their master in their work or the next toy or vacation that they can buy. With those masters, you will not find freedom, but instead slavery. The obedience to this cruel master brings short-term pleasure, only to fade while making you long for more. But obedience to Jesus brings stability and peace. So the prophecy of Jesus being called the Nazareth is being fulfilled through the obedience of Joseph. So next, let's take a look at the place. The prophecy of Jesus being called a Nazarene is being fulfilled through the place Joseph, Jesus, and Mary end up. If we look, we will realize that Joseph was not intending to take Jesus and Mary to Galilee. Our passage shows us this pretty clearly. Joseph was intending to take them to Judea, the, the place where Jesus had been born. Now, why he was doing that, we don't know. The passage doesn't tell us. Maybe there was work there. Maybe when they were leaving, his boss or the people said, if you come back, we will have something for you there. But Joseph was intending to go back to Judea, but that got derailed pretty quickly when he figured out Archelaus, or found out Archelaus, Herod's son, was ruling over that district. And because Archelaus, or because jo Joseph was afraid, which rightfully so, they went to the district of Galilee. You see, what we are recognizing, or what we notice once again, is God's guiding in the place of where His people end up. This is what the wise proverb says, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. We see God's providence playing out once again in directing Joseph, Jesus, and Mary to the district of Galilee. Is this not what we do sometimes with our children? As we guide their steps to the place that they need to go when they're young children? When you are walking next to a busy street, aren't you, the parent, not a buffer between the danger and the child? We see that the Lord is intervening here for them and in a dream, Joseph is warned not to go there. And because of that, Joseph takes Jesus, Mary, away from the danger to a different place, the place of Galilee. But not only did they go to the district of Galilee, they specifically went to a place called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was not a place to grow up. If you lived there, then you were the 
butt of all jokes. The, the people there were looked at lesser than. You were belittled and ridiculed for living in that town. You were mocked openly and privately. This place, Nazareth, was not the place to live. You were seen as a despicable and despised person. There was serious prejudice going on. Nobody thought anything good could possibly come from the place of Nazareth. When I was living in Louisville with Sharice, finishing up my undergrad, I remember a teacher telling me that Louisville was the perfect place to live. It's a perfect place to live because it was eight hours from almost everything. From New York to the ocean on the East Coast to Florida to Denver, back up to Wisconsin. He called it the perfect place to live because you could travel and go anywhere you wanted. But is this not one of the problems that we as modern-day people struggle with? The contentness of the place that God has put us, always looking for that next place to travel, always looking at how the grass is greener over there. I recently just was talking to a friend of mine who I think made a great observation. Whereas maybe the older generation, their idea of the American dream was retiring early and buying their dream house in Florida, the younger generation's idea of the American dream is going around and traveling to all of the places that they can. So we don't often consider the place God currently has us living in. With that being said, we also don't often consider the place that our church is located. Just like where Joseph was taking Jesus and Mary is significant, so is the place you live. So is the place of this church. If it is true that man plans his ways, but God establishes his steps, then we must say that God has placed each of us exactly where we should be. Your neighborhood, your home, your neighbors are not by accident. You, as a Christian, have been placed there as an outpost for Christ. You, as Christians, have been placed where you live right now to bring the light and healing balm of the gospel. I find it interesting that when the man who was healed by all of those demons, by Jesus, wanted to go with Jesus on his journey, Jesus says, no, go back to your town and tell them about all the good things I have done for you. Look, the place that you live is by no accident. God has put you there in that neighborhood to be an ambassador for His kingdom. 
Likewise, where our church is located is by no surprise. We are to be a city on a hill, to be a lighthouse for those out on the sea. It is by no accident that our church is right here, that 33 years ago, a group of people decided to plant this church right here. We have a neighborhood who needs the healing message of the gospel. We have a neighborhood who needs the ministry of our good works from our faith. If our church were to close tomorrow and not a single person in our neighborhood be affected, then we are not taking the place of where our church is and the place God has put us serious. The prophecy of Jesus being called a Nazarene is being fulfilled through the place Joseph, Jesus, and Mary end up. Which brings us to our last point, the plan. The prophecy of Jesus being called a Nazarene is being fulfilled through the plan that God had. Matthew, up to this point, has been unfolding this plan to us. We, we've seen in the beginning of chapter 1 that Jesus is this promised offspring of David and Abraham. We saw at the end of the chapter how Jesus was to be born of a virgin, that this was to fulfill what the prophet had said. We see throughout chapter 2, four prophecies being fulfilled through the life of Jesus. We see that it was to be fulfilled that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. We see that there was to be a prophecy fulfilled by Rachel weeping for her children. We see that there is a prophecy being fulfilled that out of Egypt, His Son would be called. And now we are seeing the fourth prophecy in this chapter being fulfilled that His Son was to be called a Nazarene. As I mentioned earlier, man plans his ways, but God establishes his steps. This right here that's taking place is a divine prophecy. Right here you could say that Jesus' nickname is a divine nickname. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. That he would be called a Nazarene. But this might seem like a, a strange nickname, doesn't it? This might seem like a strange prophecy. Why would Jesus need to be called a Nazarene? Well, we can understand better that this is a, a strange prophecy, a strange nickname, when, when we know that nowhere in Scripture does a prophet actually say that the Messiah was to be called the Nazarene. Well, maybe the prophets did prophesy that, it just never made it, but we don't see a single verse in the Old Testament that a prophet says that the Messiah was to be called a Nazarene. So what's the significance here? I think we can better understand this when we realize that people saw nothing good come out of Nazareth. That's why Philip says to Nathaniel when they are talking about Jesus, can anything good come from Nazareth? I think what Matthew is doing is setting the stage for us 
that Jesus being called a Nazarene would fulfill the prophet by him being the despised and rejected Messiah. And I think we get a great look at one of the prophets' understanding of this. As Isaiah says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteem him not. What I think Matthew is doing here is showing us how Jesus receiving the nickname Nazarene was to signify that he was the despised and rejected Messiah. And we've already seen this take place. As the wise men go to search for this king, we see Herod reject this king. We see when the wise men go to worship this king, the religious leaders, the Israelite religious leaders, do not go with them but reject this king as well. We'll see later that he is thrown out of his hometown. The religious leaders plot to take his life. Even the disciples at the end of his life leave him. They all scatter from him. And the one who said, I will never reject you, Jesus, rejects him not once, not twice, but three times. This was part of the plan for Jesus to be rejected. It was a part of the plan because only Jesus could fulfill what was said. He was a part of the, the plan and he does this by being rejected, not just by humans, but ultimately by God. On the cross, Jesus is rejected mercy by God because of the sin that was placed on him. Jesus lived the sinless life, but bore our sins so that when we trust in Jesus, we would not be rejected by God, but accepted on behalf of Jesus. Let me put it like this. The plan was that Jesus would be rejected so that when we trust in Jesus' works, we would be accepted by God. This is the plan. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're thinking to yourself right now, I'm just too far gone. I'm not good enough. I've always been told I'm not good enough. And everyone's always said I'll never amount or be good enough. God isn't asking you to be good enough. He simply invites you to trust in His Son, Jesus. 
and through His Son, you can receive grace. Look, Jesus was despised and rejected by society. He understands that rejection. And one of the things that he offers is a family of others who are called rejects and outcasts. The prophecy of Jesus being called a Nazarene is being fulfilled through the plan God had to reconcile sinners back to himself. When Charles Spurgeon started preaching in London, the church that he preached at offered him a job. He was reluctant to take it at first, but he did. Within a few weeks, the 150 people turned into more than a thousand people where there was standing room only and where people would stand outside of the church just to hear him preach. Along with that came critics who would relentlessly attack him. Get this, critics complained that he spoke too plain and too direct to the people. One newspaper said it was too edgy and dangerously innovative to speak as plain and direct as he did. Others said that his preaching was more like slang, if anything. And almost all critics said that he would fizzle out like a comet in the sky within nine days. So how did Mr. Spurgeon deal with his critics? In obedience, he kept on obeying what Jesus had called him to do. To preach the gospel, make disciples, care for orphans and widows. He knew God had called him to his to the place he now called home, London. And he trusted that the Lord had a plan. That is to continue in the ministry that was before him, right where he was, obeying what Jesus had called him to do. If I can encourage you one last time before I pray, it's with this. Jesus was ultimately rejected so you would not be. And because of that, He calls you into faith and obedience to obey His Word right now where you live, seeing hurting and sinful people healed by His good news. And this plan is twofold. He does it through you and by the power of His gospel. And guess what? God has equipped you to do this. He's given you His Holy Spirit. He's called you to do this. And 
by the power of His Spirit, you can. So let's go and do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus, to be the despised and rejected Savior. Would You please lead us to affectionately obey your son Jesus all the more. In Jesus' name.